right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Job. I'll try to get through two chapters today, 23 and 24, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. A couple announcements. If you serve here at Calvary, thank you. We've got uh, your Christmas gift out there. Um, so many of you. We try to hand them out if we can, but um, there's over 40 this year. So um, if you serve here in any way, please find your gift and, and know that it's heartfelt and uh, we really appreciate your service and your love for God. So that's out there. Please grab those on your way out and um, hope you're blessed by them. Um, just a couple things I wanted to go over. Uh, New Believers Bible Study. Um, just wanted to keep that fresh in everybody's mind. I know it's up there on the board, but if you're a new believer or you have never been taught the scriptures, never been taught the Bible, maybe you've attended church for decades, but you don't know what the Bible says. And there, there are those cases. And so um, we have a new believers Bible study. Jerry Veer right here leads it. Um, and we do it as if anybody comes, great. He'll sit here for 15 minutes. If nobody shows up, he, he goes home. Um, uh, but if anybody shows up, he's willing to teach and share. And um, you can ask all the questions you want to ask. Um, he's got a certain system that he goes through, but wherever you are and whatever questions you may have at that stage in your walk with the Lord, he's willing to break away and take some time and answer those questions too. And uh, very knowledgeable in the scriptures and uh, a real blessing and an asset. So take advantage of that if you need to. And that's on, uh, that's on Sunday nights. If it doesn't work on Sunday night, we're also at least temporarily doing it at 5.30 on Wednesday. Okay, 5.30 on Wednesday they meet, but also here at 6 also on Sunday evening. So please come by for that. Tonight we have our prayer meeting, um, uh, prayer time uh, from 7 to 8. Join us for that. We'll be here in the sanctuary. 7 to 8 is our prayer. And then the youth have their event today from 5 to 7.30. You're welcome to join them for that as well. Uh, 5 to 7.30 for the youth that are taking place. So busy day here. Um, uh, after second service or during second service, we'll be ordaining David Spencer as our missions pastor here. So um, be in prayer for that and uh, that that goes well. Um, I thought it was going to be first service, but well, he's not here. So uh, <laughs> serve him right if I did it anyway, right? <laughs> no, I think he told me second, but i so scattered. I forget these things sometimes. So anyway, you can't, you can just look at the cake. You don't get to that. And that's why we're ordaining people just so you know, so that we can all have cake. Um, that's really the purpose of it. All right. Just kidding. Um, he's been faithful for a long time and, um, and uh, missions oriented and, and loves his ministry to Africa. And we think this will help also with uh, opening doors there and uh, accomplishing tasks in that, in that country as well. So uh, we're excited for that. All right, chapter 22 of Job. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to spend in it um, to, as, as brothers and sisters in the Lord and just kind of hanging out um, at your feet. We pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, 23, 23. I don't know if I said 22. 23 is where we're going to be in 24. So that's where we're going to start. Job's going to answer his buddy Elphaz. And uh, he's got some questions and, and, and valid ones. Job is at, in chapter 23, I think, confused. Um, it just sounds like something his friends would say as opposed to what he would say. And I guess I can understand that. Um, I don't know, if you've ever been in a car accident or any kind of traumatic moment, you, you can at, at times feel a, a mild shock, you know? Um, I remember uh, Mike, well, I was, <laughs> this is a terrible story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, I had to pull a trailer, and I didn't have a truck at the time. Now i got a truck that can pull 27 trucks and their trailers if I wanted to. But I had to borrow Mike's truck and Debbie's truck, <laughs> new-ish, right? Or brand new? I don't remember which it was. Anyway, heading out of town uh, on the way out on 46, I think, is where I was headed out to with the trailer uh, attached to his truck. And a um, young gal pulled out in front of me, and I tried to stop as fast as I could, and I creamed her and creamed his truck, and, um, and he sold it and gave that blessing to somebody else to deal. No, I'm kidding. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> Something like that, right? Well... I didn't realize it at the time, but I was, I got out of the truck and I'm running around. I'm telling everybody I broke the shifter off. I broke the shifter off. I can't, you know, I'm look because on my Highlander Toyota, the shifter's here and in the truck it's on here and I'm looking for, I said, oh man, I must've hit it with my knee. The shifter's gone. What I didn't realize is I'm running around. One of the cops said, why don't you go sit down over there? I'm like, okay. I mean, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was, but it was, I was in mild shock. I didn't realize it, you know? that I was just stunned by it so much, and I haven't been in an accident in decades, you know, and just 
oh, what was that? You know, the, the just it, nobody got hurt. Airbag didn't go off. Nothing. I just was confused. <clears throat> People go through that spiritually and and in. And emotionally, there's a moment sometimes when people go through such a moment in their life that they'll say things they don't really mean or they'll act differently than the way they should or what's out, it's unusual for them to act that way. And I guess that's what I'm liking it to. Job is, I don't know if I'd say he's in mild shock, but the way he words these things, he's definitely, he's getting to that place as he answers every one of his buddies that he doesn't know that he even knows his own answers anymore, you know? Like I'm saying it, but I don't even know if I understand what I'm saying kind of thing. And so that's, that's what I chalk this up to. I've gone through moments like that spiritually, and I'm sure, you know, especially up here, it doesn't matter what I'm going through in my own personal life or things I'm thinking about or going through, and I'll get up here and I need to teach. And sometimes I'll, I'm just going to teach the Bible. I'm going to teach what it says. Now, I'm struggling with things. I'm dealing with things, but it doesn't... doesn't uh, it doesn't excuse me or allow me to step away from the ministry God's called me to do. And that's, I think, where Job is at right now, you know, um, in this. And so let's get to it. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. What Job's talking about here and what he's going to get through with these two chapters is, I don't know why we don't just deal with it now. Why don't we just have judgments now? And I think that is one of the world's biggest complaints about God. An unbeliever's complaint about God is, if you're so good, why is there evil? And everybody knows that question, and a lot of Christians are terrified of that question being asked of them, because they don't have an answer for it either. They're like, I don't know why there's evil in the world. Now, I've got answers. I've got biblical answers, scripture. They're very rarely received by the unbeliever, but they're accurate and they're true. We brought evil into the world. We decided to find out the difference between good and evil. We ate of the fruit. We're in rebellion. It's my fault that I drank too much and ran into those people. God had nothing to do with it. But the idea for the unbeliever is, why doesn't he intervene? That's the problem. That's the crux of the matter. If you're so good and so all-powerful, why don't you stop bad things from taking place all the time? And that's the struggle. This free will that we have, this choice this opportunity. Now, they want him to step in and stop bad things from happening as they see it, but they really don't want him stopping them from doing the bad things that they've done in their lives. That would be offensive to them because every one of us is guilty before God. Every one of us. Every one of us needed to be stopped. Every one of us needed to have our mouths shut or tied up for a day so that we didn't do what we were going to do that day kind of thing. And yet God allows it all. And I think that's what Job is getting at here. That's fine. Is it my court date yet? What are we waiting on here? I want to stand before my judge. I want to get it out. I want to place my arguments. I want to hear his arguments. And he's even honest. Can I contend with him? Well, no. You know, it's God. But he'd take note of me. I'd make my stand. He says in verse 8, looking, or look, I go forward but he is not there. Backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. And when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. I don't see him anywhere in my life. Forward, backward, right, left. And a lot of scriptures come to mind for that. You know, as we sang the song, you're my fortress, you know, and, and you're, you're my guard, you're my rear guard, you're my forward. I mean, all these scriptures come to mind. But Job, and there's two ways to look at this. Either he knows he's there, but he can't see him and he can't perceive him. But that really isn't the case because God truly has removed his protection from Job except for his life. Satan can't kill him, but he can do everything else to him to see if he's going to curse God. That's the whole point of this book. Or whether he believes, I think he's left me. I think he's forsaken me. I just don't want to say it out loud. I'm not going to forsake him, but it sure feels like from where I'm looking, I haven't been protected on my right. I haven't been protected on my left and so on. I don't know where he's coming from. Either way, we can feel either one of those scenarios. I know he's there. I just don't see him. Or I don't think he's there. 
because I certainly don't feel the protection that I think I should be feeling right now. And that's where he is right now. That's where Job is standing. Verse 10, but he knows the way that I take when he has tested me. I shall come forth as gold. Very, very important verse. Probably the most important verse of this chapter 23. It's a very profound statement. It's a very biblical, godly statement for a man to make in the condition that Job's in. I know, and I know he knows the way that I'm taking. I know that I'm being tested and I'm going the right direction. And it's going to come through as gold when this is all done. And that is the hope that Job, I think, is clinging to and grabbing onto and what helps him go through. And that's what all of us, I think, as believers. (laughs) That's the most important part of studying prophecy or studying end times or eschatology. I toggle sometimes in my own mind. I mean, why study the future? It's going to unfold the way it's going to unfold anyway, is the idea. But that then goes along with the same lines as why pray. God already knows what I'm going to pray beforehand. Why pray? Or... And any other scenario you can come up with in Scripture. The point is, all of it is for us. God doesn't need me to teach eschatology so that we can finally figure it out to bring it to pass. He's simply telling us ahead of time what the future holds so that we know that he knows what the future holds and that it's going to unfold the way he wants it to, that none of it's a surprise to him. And I hold on to that, and we teach that, and we're studying the book of Revelation on Thursday nights for that purpose, not for us to be terrified and to see if we can spot the Antichrist out there. You know, which is, you know, you do try to guess who it might be, you know, every day. It seems to be, it could be many people today and day, you know, today's day. You, you look out and say, well, you know, could be him, could be her, could be them, could be all y'all, you know, kind of thing. As you look at the news, the whole point of it is to give us a reason to hope. The reason I pray is to line myself up with God's will to get my place in, in my heart, like David does or anybody else does that vocalizes their prayers publicly by writing them in the Psalms or something, he'll begin off with this, I feel horrible, I don't know why I'm so downcast. And by the time he's done praying to God, he's up on the mountaintop again with the Lord. Oh, it's so good to be with you. I know who you are. I mean, I know who I am, but I know who you are kind of thing. And that's what's happening, I think, here with Job. Job says, I, my hope is in forever. My hope is in what I know to be true about the future, that one day everything's going to be revealed for what it is. Whether my three friends understand that I love God or not, I'm done trying to convince them. When I'm done with this, I'm going to stand before God and he knows, because I know he knows. I know he knows all things. He knows my heart. And whatever I'm being tested in here, I'm taking the right path, and I know that it's going to come forth as gold. Many scriptures that talk about that, that there's a fire that's going to sweep through, and anything that's flammable burns. We, I, it's one of my, <laughs> not many people agree with this, but leave it to me to have it as a thing in my life. But I hold on to this. Trying to put fires out in churches, you know, people fires, arguments, rumors, whatever's going on in the church, gangs, cliques. I've learned from a pastor, a senior pastor, a long time ago. I won't tell you who, because it doesn't matter. He says, it's best to let those things burn. I say, really? Yep, because the only thing that's flammable, the only thing that's going to burn is those things that are flammable. It's the things of the flesh burn up. People get so stirred up and angry and whatever. And that was always there. This is just a cause for it to spark up and let it go. Let it burn. Whatever's gold will stay. And whatever's hay and stubble that's the only thing that's going to burn. So let it. It makes everybody better. It makes your flock healthier. It makes your church stronger. Oh. I mean, you do your best to defend other people, you know, encourage other people to love and care for one another like Paul does, um, and write letters and, you know, come alongside people and encourage them, and, and they're down and out. But in the end, when these things happen, all that's left is gold, and that's what Job's hoping for. Job's in, his life is on fire. You know, everything is burning and his faith is being tested and he knows that. And he says, it doesn't matter what happens here. It doesn't matter whether I have my day in court or not. Whatever is going to withstand this flame in my life is going to be gold. And I want that. We go through a refining process as Christians. We're warned about that several times. And we joke about it sometimes. Oh boy, here it comes. You know, (laughs) don't ask for that. Be careful what you pray for and all these things that we say. And yet, 
We're not to call it strange when fiery trials come upon us. And we're to let those things go and let God do what he needs to do in our lives. Verse 11, my foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? Or whatever his soul desires, that's what he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I'm afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. One of his questions is here, I believe, I mean, it's, it's implied anyway, why did I survive this? Why my kids and, and why my stuff? And why, how did I come out of this unscathed? And he's thinking that through. And I think he's coming to the right conclusion because this is something that has to do with me. I'm still alive and still walking with the Lord publicly because he's doing something. And I think he recognizes that. So it's a little terrifying to him. Seems like God just wants to do whatever he wants to do with my life, and he's letting these things happen. And that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, And so he's coming to that place where he's defensive in his walk with the Lord, and he's refuting. And now he's saying, I don't know what's happening. All I know is that it's happening, you know. That's a great place to be. I think God needs to take us to that place a lot. That is faith. We hear the word faith being used in, in, in well, in, all over the place. It's, it's used wrong, I think, in a lot of times. I understand what they're trying to get at. You need to have more faith, you know, and, and all. As if that's something I can go to a drawer and pull out, you know, or, or muster up or something. When we want more faith, we are asking for God to put us in a situation where there is nothing for us to understand about that situation. We cannot comprehend it, and yet we know who he is, and so we're able to go through it, completely trusting in him, having no idea of our own capabilities or what's going to happen next or anything, but we're going to completely trust in him. That's faith, and that's what our salvation rests upon. Nobody in this room has any idea whether Jesus is coming back again. The only reason we all believe that and know that is because he said so. That's it. I have no assurances of that. I, I have nothing to look for outside to see that. It's sunny like it always is. It's dark when we do daylight savings like it always is. You know, it feels darker this year for some reason. I don't know. It's like I walk out at 4 o'clock and it's like midnight out there. I'm like, what is, I don't think I've ever experienced this before. Is somebody not telling us something? Is the sun getting smaller or something? What's happening here? Maybe a larger orbit or something. I don't know. I just never noticed it as much. Yeah, I am getting old. That's for sure. I keep telling everybody that, but nobody believes me. I'm old. I'm only 52. Old for me. Job is in a place where he has to just completely trust God. I have no idea what's happening. And to do that with hope... I mean, that's faith. To find yourself in that situation, that's a really good place to be. It's the best place to be. It reminds me of that. We had a a missionary friend, um, Colonel O'Leary, Jeff O'Leary, Air Force Colonel. And uh, he did Mission of Joy Orphanage for years and has since um, left that post and has retired and is with his wife in Oregon, I think, is where they are right now, or Washington. I don't remember. One of those rainy dreary states over there move buddy anyway he's out there and he said that they said one of the he had a question and answer period he came up and was sharing and he says you guys have any questions for me they said yes how can you take your kids to these places these dangerous horrible conditions places and he goes well and he and i think i've shared this story before but he had such a great answer he goes the safest place for me and my kids to be is in the presence of god the most dangerous place for me to be is to be outside of the will of God. And if the will of God is for us to go to the most dangerous part of the world, that is far safer than being in the United States where you don't think anything's going to happen to them. And it took a while for me to comprehend that because I had new babies at the time. You know, JC and Seth were little, 
And I'm like, well, I know I'm not going there, not with them, not knowing what's going to happen to them. You hear these stories of the dad being taken and the kids and all these things. It's like, well, that, you know, shouldn't have brought your kids there. No, 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 the best and safest place. And he described how he had, in a way, by being obedient to God, had saved his son who didn't end up addicted to video games or drugs or any of these things. He, there was no time for him to do it. He's too busy fighting cobras. He showed us pictures of how they were driving and, and the, the ravine had, or, you know, the road on, on these mountain roads where they were, where they were, you know, you get a water wash out where it comes almost into that first tread where your tire should be. It's gone, but the plants have grown over it and they just drive. And later on, they looked back and said, what was that bump? And they took a picture, then they moved the wheat. You could see like a thousand feet down where the tires should have gone, you know? Now God protected us today. And I'm like, get your kids back home. What are you doing taking them on these dangerous roads, you know, dangerous living? Or, yeah, we found, a, we found another cobra. <laughs> you know, who says that? I don't remember his son's name. He's like, yeah, so-and-so found another cobra. He got it. He got it? No. <laughs> Come here, Colonel Leary. Here's how you parent, you know. You don't let your kids play with cobras. It's wrong. It's bad. Venomous. Dangerous. You know, kind of thing. But I get it now. And, of course, you understand with all the humor and with all the jokes about it. His son is solid with Jesus Christ. Solidly walking with the Lord. And was protected from the... What I think our country has an epidemic of for our youth is ease, carelessness, a life of wondering of purpose and what are my roles and what should I do? And I just, I find no fulfillment in school and then coming home and sitting here doing nothing and watching TV and watching parents tired and they come home and watch TV and this whole thing that becomes a cycle and kids begin to look for other things to stimulate or to numb. Whereas this kid was fighting cobras. Well, that kept you alert. That kept you praying. That kept you close to God, you know? Anyway, the safest place we can be is in the presence of God, in his, in his hands. Chapter 24. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? And that is his question for 23 and the rest of this is how come we're waiting for judgment? I mean, what's, what's the big reveal? You know, what are we waiting on here? He says, some remove landmarks. So now he's going to go through a list of sins that he's seen people do and what people do and should be judged for. Some remove landmarks. What that is, is uh, we have surveys done. Um, we've got a funny neighbor. I'm not going to point to which one. It's not Brian Skidmore, but Brian can probably guess who it is. But when we first moved here, this guy would come down and weed eat around the markers, weed eat around the little pins at the, the survey coming. And he was there with the, taking a picture and he would check it every single week to see if it was being moved, you know? And so I started moving it. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> back and forth. Hey, you figure it out, buddy. No, 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 I didn't do that. I wanted to do that. I thought, what? really? You think I'm moving? I got, I got yeah, two more inches for Calvary Chapel and stealing his land or something. Well, that's what they would do. They would go out at night and they move their pile of rocks. Well, I don't know how I got another acre, you know, kind of thing. And over time, they'd move these landmarks because some people do that. They seize the flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. So the, the poor orphan kid has got his own donkey. They, they steal it from him. They take the widow's ox as pledge. She couldn't pay her taxes so, or bill or rent or something. So they take her ox, which is her probably her way of making money, you know. They push the needy off the road. They're begging, you know, get out of the, get off the road. We'll run you down, you know, get out of here. Quit washing my windshield, we might say today. Quit washing my windshield. I got to get going. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, and this is these people that are forced away. They go out to do their work, searching for food. They just need some food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They're surviving off of the land and what they can find. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. 
then you could do that. After the harvest, you would go through, and that's what gleaning is. If you didn't know, you'd walk through and pick up whatever's left behind by the harvesters. Today, you would go and, uh, you know, you'd find it when they, when the grain trucks go around a corner and some of it spills out, you know, and there's my squirrel food. I'm going to get that. You know, you take your scoop shovel and I've never done that. I just, somebody might've done that once or twice. Well, that's the idea. In a much more desperate situation, they're trying to find food for their family. They spend the night naked without clothing, just tatters and cold and exposed to the elements. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains. They huddle around the rock for want of shelter, just trying to get some kind of protection. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They could do that back then. You could... You could have your children taken away from you and used as forced labor to pay off your debts if they wanted to. In fact, we have a, a scripture about that when the, the prophet comes in and helps her because um, she's afraid that the, her husband's died. She's a widow and the creditor's coming to take her kids. And, and so they're, they're in need and he handles it for them. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls. And tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out. Yet God does not charge them with wrong. Not not to get on a soapbox, because it isn't a soapbox. I think it's a what's something that I guess needs to be taught, because there's a misunderstanding, I think, about uh, some uh, a Christian's. Um, they're antagonistic towards the government and against welfare and against all these things. And, and it's important that we as Christians understand why we're against that. It's not because we don't want to take care of the poor. Very important to understand this. It's because we want to take care of the poor. It should never go to a third hand. It should never be that way. It's never prescribed by God to do that so that someone else so that we pay to some third party, they get from some third party, and this never takes place, this moment for us. I am a reluctant, evil, hateful giver then, as I give to the government the taxes, and I take my taxes to give it to some poor guy over there, because I've never had that interaction with the poor guy, or gal, or family. Christians are supposed to be the most liberal, hold on, don't put your rocks away, the most liberal People in the Bible are people on the earth. Liberal, giving, selfless. We're supposed to be liberal. We're just not left. There's a difference between those two things. There's a difference. Conservatism protects liberalism. That's the point. As I give to the person directly, and I still do that, regardless of how many taxes they take, that's up to them if they want to ruin someone's life. Because I become a reluctant giver and they become an expectant receiver. And it ruins the humility and the whole process that God wants to take place for someone to be humble enough to be a receiver from the person who's being the giver and someone to have that moment where they're helping their fellow man and have compassion, empathy for somebody. We lose that in this new transaction where the government steps in and takes away. That is why if a Christian is opposed to it, that's why, because they want to do it themselves. If you're of the mindset that you don't want to do that for anybody else, then you've got a bigger problem. You need to examine your walk with Jesus Christ. Because we are to have compassion and empathy for the people in front of us that have a need, and we're to meet those needs if it's possible for us to meet those needs. So liberalism is Christianity. Leftism isn't. There's a difference. So I say that because as he goes through this list of all these things and all these things happening to people, some are excited about this happening. They just they need to be naked or they, they just they need to learn how to work. They're working. They don't have a lot to show for the work because they're gleaning. It's hard. Ruth is a gleaner. We love the story of Ruth and Boaz. What a beautiful story. Well, okay. Ruth would walk through fields looking for pieces of grain and shocks and bring them home and be happy she brought home a handful so they could make a loaf of bread, you know. And her future husband thought she was so cute and was really attached to her, he started to drop a little more for her, you know, put a little back over there, which is an interesting way to date somebody, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But eventually it comes about like it's supposed to. And she becomes his wife. And they have a beautiful moment, beautiful children, and we have the Messiah through her, actually, the Moabitess. 
That being said, we see this happening. It should break our hearts still. And the problem is the world is causing almost everybody in this world to become calloused and hard and to forget the beauty, the softness. I mean, Jesus knew that of the 5,000 people that he fed, plus women and children, many of them were only there for the food, and yet he still fed them. He still did it, you know, because it's the right thing to do. What they do with it and how their hearts respond to that has nothing to do with what I do, you see. It has nothing to do with that. My job is to be pleasing to my God. Their job is to be honoring to their father also, but if they choose not to do that, that's up to them. That's up to them. Verse 13. Now, there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark, they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in terrors of the shadow of death. Everything they do, they do at nighttime. That's one of our problems with this world is you can't see the night sky anymore because of all the sodium lights, which are getting changed out to LEE, but it's still the same problem. You pull up into a, you know, you're driving on the dark highway, you know, and you can see the stars. And as you come to the city, you can't see the stars anymore. And all you see is the glow dome, you know, the orange glow over the, you know, there's a city over there. There's Maryville right over there. You tell your kids as you're driving closer and you forget what you've lost by living amongst all that, that you can't just walk outside and look up like you should be able to and wonder about God and the size and infinite infinity, you know, and the infinite uh, and all. And so there's, there's been this glow and the glow is there for a purpose. It's because there's so much crime that's done in the dark. And so we have these lights up, shining on homes, security lights, we call them. We have a light out here that shines on our church on this side. I mean, if you want to break in, you go to the back side. There's no lights out there. You probably need to fix that, you know. We just leave the door open half the time. It's like, just don't break the door. Get what you need to get and go. Um, The lights are there because of crime. Because people love darkness. They love to hide in that. They don't want to be seen. And so they come in in the dark. So the, the orange lights that we don't like, well, those are there to protect us from the evil that would take place if there was darkness. And that's what he's talking about here. The criminal hates that stuff. In Romans chapter 16, oh no, 13, sorry. Did I write it even down? Come on now. <laughs> are you kidding me? I've got all these notes and none of them are right. Hmm. Now I'm trying to figure out why I did that. Let's return there anyway. I didn't write it down, but Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. Sometimes I get off script. (laughs) Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's not. Chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in the revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust. So the point of that was, let's let's get out of the darkness ourselves and walk in the light. And he says, you are the light of the world. He tells us that, light and salt. When we show up, evil is terrified. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be exposed. We know further that he says that some, to some people, you're the fragrance of life. To others, you're the stench of death as a Christian. You remind them of their evil deeds and they don't want to, they know judgments and, you know, it's pending. Or your light that they've been looking for their whole lives to come out of the darkness and now they know have this, they have some place to go. They have an answer for their guilt, their shame and all. It's, it just depends on the person. Anyway, Job recognizes this. And so he fills us in here in verses 8 through 21 And begins to tell us, here's what should happen. I circle the word should. I know it's italicized, but that's the idea. Should, 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 should. Dangerous place when we as man look up to God and say, you know, here's how it ought to work. Well, he does anyway. They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed 
in the earth. And here's why. So that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. We need to have some swift judgment so that bad things happen to bad people. Now stop being bad and we need some precaution, you know, and that's how our worldly justice system works. That's the idea. It's meant to be preventative, punitive for sure, but also preventative, you know. So we need to get these guys in jail now so that anybody walking around say, I don't want to go to jail, so I'm not going to do that. We need that, he says. God ought to be doing that. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. They ought to just die. The womb should forget them. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. The wickedness should be broken like a tree, for he prays on the barren who do not bear and does no good for the widow. That's what ought to happen. And that's where he sounds a lot like his buddies, doesn't he? You know? And maybe that's a reminder to them as they're accusing and calling him out on these hidden sins that he has. He's like, look, I'm with you on this. I think evil should be judged immediately also, but it's not. And that's something we have to deal with. I don't want to put applications to everything, but I think it's important to deal with it when we're here, when we see something like this. Because I have those same thoughts. Justice delayed is justice denied. Why is this court case taking so long? How come, you know? And, and there's good reasons that we have these things written, that, the, that you have the right to a, a swift trial to come about quickly. What do you mean it's taken two years to get to trial, you know? We need to, I don't, and I got to sit in jail for two years while you decide when you're going to come. And what if I get found not guilty after two years? Who's going to pay me back for that two years of laws? You know, we mean a swift trial here. And a lot of times it's because, I mean, it's because they file motions and procedures and it starts the clock all over again. I mean, there's a lot that goes on there, but the right to that. Why do people get away with stuff down here? Why do people get off and they don't get what they deserve? How come they never get found out? And this is the question he has. Where is God? Why isn't he doing these things? Well, I guess that's why we're studying the book of Revelation too. It it may feel like to us justice delayed is justice denied, but it isn't. Justice isn't denied. Justice is coming. And that isn't something we just made up as Christians to deal with the fact that good bad things happen to good people and Good things happen to bad people, but it's true. There's a great, great white throne judgment that's going to take place. It's, it's permanent. The sentence there, I mean, there, there is one sentence there. It's not, it's not you know, gradient, as if that's the right word. It, it doesn't have tears. It, there aren't levels. When you go to the great white throne judgment, if there's sin in your life without being paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's death forever. You know, um, if you murdered somebody, it's death forever. If you stole food, it's death forever. I mean, there is no levels there. When the great white throne judgment hits, the books are opened, your sins are exposed, and the sentencing is hell. Burning forever, away from the Lord continually. I mean, it's, it's huge. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why do I? As a Christian, why do I? That's a very convicting thought. There are times when I cheer. Yes, justice. You know? I got to be careful about that. Now, I know that it's a temporary justice. I'm not opposed to death penalty. Don't get me wrong. it's, It's God's design. It's God's idea. I mean, anybody that's opposed to the death penalty is you're directly coming against the Lord and his word. Okay, so there's no argument there. And I know that it's this life. I know that there is a second death that is the one that everybody should be concerned with. It isn't this death. It isn't how cancer, electric chair, um, car accident, sickness, old age, heart attack, whatever it is, death comes. This first death comes. It's that second death that we're to be concerned about, which is what Jesus Christ came to save us from. Everybody in this room, without the rapture, I'm not including that, will die. We're all going to die. We all know that. We try to ignore it and try to talk about it too much, but we're all going to be there. 
And that's not the death we're to be concerned about. The death we're to be concerned about is the second death. That's what the scriptures call it, the second death. This great white throne judgment moment where it's a permanent sentencing for the sins that I've committed. And so whatever should or shouldn't happen here on earth, whatever does and doesn't happen here on earth is simply a speeding up or a slowing down of the inevitable death that's going to take place for everybody on earth. But the great white throne judgment is very unforgiving. Literally, you are there. And you stand there quiet as the accusations and and the sentencing is handed out. God delays that and puts that second death off and puts that great wine throne judgment off until he can't anymore because he's just and there has to be a day of reckoning. You can't just forever ignore it. But he puts it off as long as he can to make sure everybody has an opportunity to have their sins forgiven. And I need to be on board with that plan. It's very important that I'm on board with that and that I'm excited for that and that I'm helping in his heart on that matter, you know, There are some people I want saved. There are some people that I might kind of drag my feet to go talk to because I'm not so sure, you know. It's just how it is. We prioritize, we categorize people in our mind. Everybody that's tied with this court case that's going on right now, they ought to all go straight to hell. Yeah, yeah, they will. I mean, they will. They will. Everybody in in this court case right now for pedophilia, yeah, right now they are. And yet, I, oh man, put your rocks away. But honestly, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The second death. He takes no pleasure in not having people redeemed. He takes no pleasure in people not accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He never looks and says, oh good, I'm so glad they didn't accept Christ because we would have had to live with them forever up in heaven. Whew, that was a close one. That is an area in my heart that just, in, you know, to get to that place in my mind and in my heart to be filled with the Spirit in such a way that I understand that and get that in my heart like he does, like he has and wants me to have. It's a tough road to get there. And it all comes down to this. I think I'm better. That's really what it is. They deserve it. I definitely don't deserve it because I've never done anything like that before. And it's a comparison thing. We all do it. We categorize and prioritize sins. And we're all down here. I guarantee you, if you ask yourself, where are you in the sin level? I'm about a three. I mean, I need Jesus, but like a three-level Jesus. But them in that trial, they're like an eight to nine to ten level, you know, to get to that place. Where there is no scale, the great white throne judgment is unforgiving, and it's one sentence for every sin. That takes some meditating. And, and Job is working that out in his mind, not to get away from the text here too far. This is what should happen. Swift justice. Stop it. Maybe other people won't go down that road if we'd stop it so quick. Yeah, but have you sentenced that person before their time to accept Christ? Verse 22, but God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it. Yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while. Then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing. It does come. It does come. Luke 16, that's our last cross-reference here. Um, I'll read it to you. Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but they, oh, well, you know, it's the story of Lazarus and the poor, and the poor man. Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar, and the rich man. And this isn't a story. This is a a narrative. I mean, this happened. This happened. Jesus makes it very clear when he's teaching um, the word of God is like a seed or like the you know, behold the sower. It's like this. In this story, he doesn't. This is an actual thing that took place. So Lazarus, who was a beggar, was at this rich guy's gate all the time asking for food and money. And eventually the, 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 the poor guy dies from his, he succumbs to his, to his 
wounds and, and his condition. And then finally the rich guy dies. And the rich man ends up in the hot side of hell, the Hades. And Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, the cool side, which is waiting for Jesus at that time because it's an Old Testament story. You know, Jesus hadn't resurrected yet and led captivity captive. So there they are. And this side's fine. Abraham's bosom's fine. This side's hot. And this guy over here, the rich guy, is like, can he, can he bring over some cold water? I'm just so thirsty over here. No, no, they can't pass over to you and you can't pass over to them. Those are the rules. And he says this, and this is the point. Then at least send him back up to tell my five brothers not to end up here. And the point was, you know, if they'd only heard, if we'd only known, then we wouldn't have made these choices in our life. If we only knew how hot it was down here, how bad it was. And Jesus says, no, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. And of course, he's, he was foreshadowing his resurrection. In the same condition we have today, Jesus tells us he rose from the dead and tells us you do not want to go to hell. And many people still don't believe. And so the, the, it comes out. It's true. What this rich man thought was going to help didn't help. This goes along with these last verses 18 through 25 that we've been studying. Should, and if it was like this, if this would go down, people wouldn't do what they're supposed to be doing and, and all. And if they only knew their end, maybe they wouldn't continue on in the life that they were living. And the result is, no, we've got this story in Luke where this guy had every opportunity and knew what was right and what was wrong and still made the wrong choices. It doesn't make any difference whether anybody goes back. They know. Every person in their heart knows what's right and wrong. Now, maybe they've become very good at ignoring the conviction because the Holy Spirit convicts. That's what he does. That's his mission is to tell people this is wrong, this is right. And we know it. Now, we can do wrong things enough that we can maybe numb it or we've learned how to cope um, to where we don't hear that voice anymore or we learned how to ignore that voice so that we continue to sin against God. But make no mistake, the testimony that this rich guy was hoping was going to be given to his five brothers is being made by the Holy Spirit in everybody's heart all the time, constantly. And so when he says this here in these last three, four verses here, they're exalted for a little while. Their eyes are, you know, they're brought low, and eventually God's going to do everything he said he's going to do to them. If it's not so, prove me a liar. He says to his friends, now he leaves it in their hands. I probably shouldn't have because next week we got Bill Dad chiming in. He's going to share some more. But the good news is we're getting closer and closer to God stepping in and answering here. Um, and it is in verse or chapter, where are we? 38. So we're in 26. We've got 11 more chapters of these guys going back and forth in their ignorance without God stepping in. 11 more chapters of opportunities for Job to curse God. And he doesn't. He says some things like he did today that are going to be challenged by God later on. So what do we, what do we take away from this? What do I take away from this personally? I, I appreciate Job and I appreciate his being nominated, and I appreciate him holding his tongue thus far, but I want to do better than Job in my life. That's the bottom line. I want to be better than that. I want to know, and and we have no excuse, I want to know God so well, because as a pastor of 20-plus years now, my heart should be in a different place probably than it is when it comes to justice, when it comes to these things, and it's not. And so it's a humbling thing to read things like this and say, oh, there's still work. I mean, I know Paul didn't attain, but certainly I've come closer than Paul, you know, and that, what an arrogant thing to say or think. But you do. You get to that place where I could probably get up and teach a chapter without studying it now. I've done it enough times that you could say, hey, teach this. All right. I could probably do it without fear and throwing up in the bathroom because I'm scared to death to do it, you know. And yet you read stuff like this and it's like, oh, it's like when I started Christ, I was this far away from God and 25 years, I'm this far away from God, you know? And that's what it feels like sometimes as I study his word. And so I want to do better than Job. I want to read this and say, oh, good job, Job. Oh, I don't know, Job, that was pretty close. Where would I be if I was in Job's shoes and how much more quiet would I have been, you know? Um, And so that's my prayer for all of us. 
that we would accept the areas that need growth that God has shown us this morning and let him grow us in those areas and to let him bring us closer to him and to more like him and to be, have his heart on the matters that he talks about clearly in the word. Let's pray. Lord, we do. That's our heart. Um, we've learned many things and we've overcome many things and we've grown closer to you and we are being conformed into your image. We know that. Um, and as we read through your word, you show us um, not just things that need to be tweaked or tuned up, but absolutely destroyed and rebuilt in some cases. And that's what we want. Um, we're not afraid of the big projects. Um, we're not afraid of the small ones. Definitely don't mind those at all when you just want to tweak this in our life or change this in our life. That's fine. But I don't want to be afraid of those big projects that you want to tackle in my heart that would even make a bigger distinction between me and this world. That I'd be so much more like you that this world becomes more and more foreign to me and more and more strange and unnatural. And as I draw closer to you, I become more like you and more natural and more eternal minded. So God, that's our heart. That's our prayer today. Would you do that for us? Would you do the big projects? Would you work in areas that have, uh, have been neglected in our hearts, in our lives, rooms of our heart that haven't allowed you in them for years? Would you help us to unlock those doors and open them up and let you come into these areas and, and bring conviction and bring change from the inside out, God? That's our heart. Give us opportunities to be a blessing to the poor, to those in need, to see those around us that are desperate and to not be bitter or to be embittered by this worldly system that's been set up, but that we would still do what we're called to do by your hand, by your spirit, especially during this Christmas season, especially this time of year, when so many hearts are open to this birth, to your Savior to Jesus being on the forefront again in this world, and the world desperately wants to shut him out, but they cannot stop this. Help us to be very much a part of this Christmas season and to be open and, and available for all the ministry needs and, and, and things that you have going on for us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go, we were in the store today picking up the cake for David and his ordination here and, and all, and and Bo says, look, Time Magazine's got a story about Jesus. I said, yep. Every Christmas and every Easter they put in there, it's the same headline. Who is this? Who is this? And in their articles, if you ever read them, they've got some unbelieving ordained somebody who says, well, we really think he was this, that. And they tried to diminish and squash who Jesus Christ truly is. Every single year they do that. And they fail every year. Because nobody believes it. And I just want to encourage you. People are thinking, even Time Magazine can't shut their mouths up about this Messiah that is such a thorn in their flesh. You know, So be alert and vigilant this year and look for these opportunities to minister. I encourage you. We're, we're the light. That Time Magazine is not going to be the light. You know, So go get them. <laughs>